Co-founder, Millennium Alliance, Alex Sobel here with a great guest, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Jeffrey Kuhlman, who currently is the Senior Vice President, Chief Quality and Safety Officer for Advent Health. Some of you are already aware because you're going to be there with him. He is our keynote speaker at the opening night gala dinner, March 9th to the 10th for the healthcare providers out in Austin, Texas. A little bit of background about Dr. Coleman, if you're not familiar with him. Before joining Advent Health, he served for 30 years as a Navy physician, spending 16 years with the sitting president and the White House as physician to the president, doctor of the White House Medical Unit, White House physician, and senior flight surgeon for Marine One. Dr. Coleman is triple board certified in aerospace family and occupational medicine. He's board certified in medical management, was awarded a certificate in traveler's health and holds credentials as a certified professional in patient safety and a certified physician executive, among many other things, which I'm sure we're going to cover the course of this interview. But Dr. Coleman, thanks for being here. Been very much looking forward to talking to you What and I, what, in what will I expect to be a very fun and interesting conversation. Good to be with you, Alex. And you'll see I'm a lifelong learner and, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> You definitely have a lot of experience and I've had a very uh, distinguished career and definitely some things you've done, I'm sure will prompt me to ask you some unique questions. But first, because you've had such a storied career and you've accomplished so much and you've achieved so many great things in your life, I'd like to get it uh, to rewind back to the beginning. I, I know you live in Orlando, Florida now, but as I understand, you were born in Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you could give listeners an idea of what your family life was like, what life was growing up, what life was like growing up in Chattanooga, what educational exposure did you have up until before you headed off to undergraduate university? Kind of give us a sense of who you were before you got to college. Sure. I was uh, technically born in uh, Michigan, but my uh, parents then uh, went to Indiana. My dad uh, got his PhD at Purdue. And so then as a preschooler, first memories in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So I lived in uh, uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, outside of their College Dale in a, um, a university town uh, where my dad taught physics and actually uh, 55 years later still teaches the same uh, upper division of physics class. He says a lot hasn't changed in physics in, in 55 years. Hmm. So just as the second of eight kids, um, you know, academics was important to us, you know, elementary school, uh, high school, college kind of was in a hurry and graduated with my bachelor's degree at age 19. This was college. College. So if, if, I, if I can ask you, you said you were, yep. you were, you were the second of eight kids. Yep. All the same marriage. Yep. And your parents remained married throughout your life. Yes. And they're alive and well today and, and married and still live in uh, uh, kind of the same house I grew up in. Well, that's, in, that's incredible. Congratulations yep. on that. So with having eight kids, I'm trying to imagine myself in a household like that. You, you had, I think you had just said something like, you know, education was important in, in your household. Did all eight of you sense that or were you rare? You really gravitated toward trying to be as aligned with, you know, whatever your educational goals were. Yeah, no, I think you're onto something. I'm the least accomplished and the least educated of my siblings. Wow. In medicine, I did primary care. You know, I did family medicine, I did aerospace, I did occupational medicine. My siblings are pediatric radiology, cardiac anesthesia, 
couple MBAs, a couple doctorate in business, doctorate in English. So our household growing up, we actually didn't have a TV. So I'm horrible at the at Trivial Pursuit or Jeopardy if it's those pop culture questions. Sure. My wife can get all those, but but I can, you know, I can usually make up for it in other areas. I don't want to say education was pushed and there certainly weren't helicopter pay parents, but it was, you know, you can do whatever you want after you get your college degree. So you're you're just in a community that promotes doctors, dentists, teachers, preachers, nurses, professionals, and there's something about uh, the stability of the family that gives you that that foundation. Socioeconomically, we certainly weren't you know above the the meeting in the U.S., but you have the support to to get the education um, that you need. Nobody pays me because. I'm a nice guy. They pay because education expertise. Sure. Have the right right credentials. I I, I was just going to ask, what what did your parents do for careers? Yeah. So my dad's a university physics professor. Okay. And then my um, my mother, she had a bachelor's degree in elementary education. Probably graduated in '62. Uh, she will point out that she was the valedictorian of their class, not him. And <laughs> She got higher on her physics test than he did. She raised all of us. And that was, um, you know, that's an incredible priceless contribution to society. Sure. She did not get a paycheck from outside of the home. So they, you know, today they have kids, spouses, 21 grandchildren, and they continue with that, you know, that dedication towards uh, um, higher education. So they kind of live that life of example. You know, maybe not physical support, but certainly, you know, emotional support to um, getting educated. Got it. You had just said that you had completed your bachelor's at 19 years old. How did that happen? When, when did you start getting ahead of the other kids your age in terms of grades you were in or the sort of program you were in? Leading? Yeah. What part of your life did you start accelerating? I actually didn't go to school till, till seven years old. The kindergarten, I don't think, wanted me. And then I skipped fourth grade. Because that teacher, I don't think, wanted to deal with me. Deal with you, why? No, I just, that's a joke. Yeah, oh. just, uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, you know, move, move ahead to the fifth grade. Sure. You know, I may not have always been right, but I never was in doubt. You know, so that was kind of the kind of kid that I was. In high school, uh, during my, you know, third or fourth year of high school, I actually would walk over to the college and take uh, calculus, take college calculus. You know, we didn't have all these AP or dual credit programs back then. Uh, during the summers, I would take some college courses and you can kind of uh, knock out some credit. Uh, there was something called CLEP or Challenge where I could like challenge U.S. history and get credit for that. And there's a lot of these programs now. But when I was going to uh, college uh, early 80s, you know, I kind of had to forge them. In addition, which is just as valuable, I worked full time. So all through high school, all through college, I worked full time. I was blessed that we have a uh, little Debbie, which is a uh, uh, McKee Foods in Collegeville, Tennessee. That's the world headquarters plant one, two. Um, now we have there's other. Um, I think they're the largest employer in uh, Hamilton County, and the world's largest privately owned baking company. And so I drove a forklift for them, unloaded trucks, did uh, cardboard recycling back in the day. And I averaged 32 hours a week um, year round 
for my senior high school through my, uh, through my college. And, you know, I got to play sports. So I was able to finance uh, the education at a private school because scholarships, grants weren't as much. So in addition to the importance of education, I think they were able to give me the importance of, um, you know, showing up for work, doing a good job, kind of that individual responsibility. And the undergraduate college that you graduated from at 19, what was that school? Yeah. So back then it was Southern Missionary College. They've changed their name to Southern Adventist University. So it's okay. Tennessee. And then at 19 years old, after you may have been one of the youngest people in the whole state of Tennessee to ever yeah. get an undergraduate degree at the age of 19. Yeah. What, what, what was the next move for you? So, um, so I'd applied to medical school and, um, I applied to 10 different medical schools, and um, one that uh, caught my attention uh, was Loma Linda University out in Southern California. And at the time, it was one of the more expensive uh, medical schools, but my GPA, my college degree, and my medical college admission testing score was, um, I'm a good test taker, so I had... uh, done extraordinary, extraordinarily well with that, that they accepted me. And at the same time, I, there weren't very many scholarships available in the U.S. for medical students. So I applied to uh, Army, Navy, and Air Force. And um, I heard back from the Army, heard back from the Navy, and they gave me uh, the four-year scholarship to any U.S. medical school you get accepted at. Uh, so the Health Profession Scholarship Program I thought, oh, the Navy, all their hospitals are on the water, you know, San Diego, um, sure, sure. Uh, Atlantic, Pacific, and I, I forgot that they take care of the Marines, which might be inland. Um, so I went to Loma Linda University School of Medicine in Southern California. I think it's the second largest private west of the Rockies back then, and on a Navy scholarship and just got an outstanding education. You did your time at Loma Linda first, and then you went into the Navy, is that right? So you're actually, um, when you get an acceptance, you raise your hand and you get a commission um, in the Navy. So Ensign, if you're um, Navy and you're a second Lieutenant, if it's Army or Air Force. So during that four years, uh, that counts as service. It's not active duty time because it's post-OPMA. Summertime when other, my classmates are going to the beach, I went to officer indoctrination school up in Newport, Rhode Island for a month. The next summer, when they went to the beach again, had a little break, um, I went to Camp Pendleton and did a flight surgery uh, clerkship, so got to, f- to fly um, Huey's patchy helicopters, uh, Cobra helicopters sit in the kind of the, the front, uh, front seat, which is sort of the, the hand of God, OV-10s, and uh, just um, kind of learn about you know, the operational Marine Corps aviation. My third clerkship, I went to Naval Hospital Pensacola, and that was kind of exciting. That's when Top Gun came out. Mm. So, so there was lots of uh, interest in uh, naval aviation. My next um, uh, clerkship, I went to um, uh, CBN 65, so the Enterprise, so aircraft carrier. And I did a week and went from uh, Oakland. We went under the Golden Gate Bridge. That's cool. Off, off the coast of California for... Um, uh, for a week and did carrier uh, qualifications, CQ. Uh, so it's pretty cool having uh, jets land and take off. And as a, you know, 21 year old kid, 
you know, I probably would have paid for the experience instead of the other way around. Yeah. Uh, but I learned about sick call, you know, 5,000 people on board and um, just the preparedness of uh, surgery, dental, um, you know, back pain, just all the different things of that city on a carrier. And then we pulled into um, NAS North Island down in uh, San Diego. So, you know, so those are pretty cool experiences. And then my uh, fourth year clerkship was uh, surgery at, at Balboa. So uh, in San Diego, the Naval Hospital there, the old one, not, not the nice new one, kind of the mm -hmm. old one. Um, so that was my medical school experience were all of my clinicals. And we also got to go to community hospitals and county hospitals like Riverside General, San Bernardino County. I think those are the two most populated counties in the U.S., and just lots of uh, very interesting pathology, I think is a nice way to put it. Just as a medical student, incredible learnings, delivered 500 babies. Wow. I spent a couple months orthopedics and I never made it into the OR because I got stuck in the emergency department, diagnosing fractures, setting, you know, setting bones and lining people up to go to the OR and feeding them. And so as a you know, as a non-surgeon, that's great experience. So just, um, sure. you know, kind of fun stuff that sets you up in life to, um, you know, take care of those in need. And and then I, I noticed that what early mid nineties, you then went over to London, right? Yes. You graduate from medical school. They had a deferment program at the time from the Navy called Primus. And so they actually paid me as a reservist to do a civilian residency. So I stayed at Loma Linda and did a family medicine residency for three years and got to be the chief resident. So that was um, exciting. Then uh, July of 1990, I went active duty. So that's my active duty time. My seven years of reserve um, kind of was in the book. My started active duty. And the next week, Saddam Hussein decided to invade Kuwait. Sure. So um, that changed the world for a lot of us Navy medicine uh, folks. At the time, I had a one-year assignment in a, uh, 29 Palms, so we call it the Stumps. It's the high desert. It's the largest um, Marine Corps base in the world. Um, so it's about an hour north of um, Palm Springs, if you can imagine, you know, halfway to uh, Las Vegas. Um, so thousands of Marines overnight left and flew off to um, uh, the Middle East. And so my mobilization billet I uh, got called up three times, but each time they wouldn't let me go because I did, you know, I delivered babies, I admitted patients, I worked in the emergency room. So I did that full spectrum of family medicine and the reservists, they called up, oh, I don't do any of that. I have a weight loss clinic in Las Vegas. So they sent them as a general medical officer um, overseas. So I did that for a year. And again, that was um, very rewarding where you got to take care of um, uh, the military and their um, their spouses, and if you take care of Marines, they'll take care of you. Sure. Uh, my wife and I we got married at that time, and we moved to um, a hardship tour. We went to Pearl Harbor, so we lived in Hawaii for um, three years, and in Hawaii, um, uh, got to work at the Naval Medical Clinic in, in uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, right there at the Naval Station, the Makalapa Clinic, and that was just um, that was good work. Um, I was all ready to get out of the Navy. I'd completed my time. I asked my wife, um, hey, if we stay in the Navy, where do you want to go? And she says, well, if you can get London, 
So we actually were on, on leave, on vacation in Paris and London. We had a, a nine-month-old at that time that, that we had had in, a, in Hawaii. And uh, so we, um, it turned out that the commanding officer in London had been my commanding officer in 29, in 29 Palms. He knew what he was getting. He knew somebody young, energetic, was going to show up every day and, and uh, do the work. So I ended up, uh, he didn't have a family practice billet open. So I stopped in Pensacola and we had our second child there. I did six months the, uh, the flight surgery training for the Navy. You, you can either go the helicopter route or you can do the um, T-34 Charlie uh, flight training for your, for your final uh, couple months. So you actually get to learn kind of all the flight standards. You get to learn the, you know, the problems that happen when you try to escape the Earth's atmosphere and you get some uh, stick time and the, the man-machine interface with the planes. Um, so when I showed up in London in, uh, you know, mid-90s, uh, it just was, it was just a wonderful experience. We were there um, uh, for about four years, right until uh, Princess Diana uh, had her tragic uh, end, and then uh, on to our next assignment. Tell me if I've got this right, because I was researching your background, obviously, in preparation for this. After your time in London, was that then your first, was the next role, was that your first, I don't want to say your roles previously weren't yeah. cool. Yeah. If I have it right, one of the roles you held after London, and I think it was the first role, is you were classified as a senior flight surgeon for the presidential helicopter squadron. Does that mean that, is that Marine One? Yes. Yeah, so exactly. In London was kind of cool because I was Naval Forces Europe. So we'd fly uh, C-12s all around Europe to the different places. So that's yoke time. And you get to know a squadron that was up at RAF Mildenhall. So I didn't apply for the job at HMX-1, which is the President's Helicopter Squadron in Quantico, you know, who's, I think, cloned the president since uh, World War II uh, for all the, all the helicopters. They put me through the uh, top secret Yankee White clearance. So that's about six months you get through that. I happened to be in D.C. I met with the commanding officer of uh, HMX, and he said, you're who I want. Um, so we moved to Northern Virginia. HMX is about 100 pilots, uh, 800 uh, Marines in the squadron, in addition to the, uh, those that are assigned to the airfield. You know, they have um, a, a dozen uh, white top helicopters. So they have the, um, uh, the VH-3, um, which are the big Vietnam era, you know, the last uh, 12 that rolled off the line. And then they also have the, um, the Blackhawks, uh, the VH-60. So you, so it's kind of interesting. You have, you know, the two different makers of the helicopters. The experimental was what the uh, the X is. Uh, so at the time, um, we were developing the Osprey, so the V twenty two. So I got to do lots of uh, uh, memorable work uh, with them. Basically, anywhere the president flies, uh, travels um, in in the world, whether you know it or not, there's a helicopter there. And kind of the, the white side unclassified mission is um, it's an option for medical evaluation um, that picks them up from point A and then takes them to the uh, designated hospital uh, landing zone. So if he need, has a medical emergency, you know, heaven forbid, um, gunshot wound, knife stabbing, falls down, cracks his head open. Uh, obviously, we're going to keep the blood in the body. We're going to stabilize them. 
and we're going to get them to definitive care. Um, and all of that's uh, prearranged ahead of time. You technically, you were working for, at the time, President Clinton. Is that right? Yeah. So, okay. So that's, yeah. So that's a good clarification. So, so for those first three years, the presidential helicopter squadron were wherever the president is. For the flight surgeon, if it was in the U.S., you know, there's good medical care in the U.S. I didn't have to go. If it's anything outside of the U.S., it became variable. So one of the flight surgeons or our um, hospital corpsman, uh, we would travel with the squadron. Our main duty is to keep uh, the pilots and the air crew that are flying the president to take care of them so that they can do their mission. While we're there ahead of time, say in India, if we're there a week ahead of time, anyone that's part of the White House travel, the advance team, provide care for all of them. So I actually didn't move up to the White House to be a, a White House physician until December of 2000. So it's kind of the last two months of President Clinton. So um, out of the three presidents yep. that surrounded your time doing yep. this type of work, yep. Clinton, Bush W., yep. and Obama, if you could put them in order in terms of closeness, intimate relationship, strong bond, how, how would you rank those for you? So I would say kind of all three are completely different. So with President Clinton, um, I met him just a few times and interacted with him. But if you meet him once, he has a presence and he has this God-given ability that he will laser focus on you and he will make you feel like at that moment, you're the most important person in the world. And years later, if he comes across and interacts with you, he will remember your name. He may remember a family member that you talked about. He may remember some other trivia, and he's just extraordinary in his ability to connect with people. So that kind of makes you feel, you know, meaningful human relationship. Bush 43, you know, when I think when Clinton left, he was probably 54. I think when President Bush came in, he was 54. You know, they're both, both um, you know, whatever that was, born in 46, kind of the beginning of the baby boomer uh, generation, uh, that leading edge. Um, President Bush was very much, you know, um, grew up, had gone to pilot training. You know, one of the boys, the leader of the pack, he would um, interact with you and how he deals with people is he jabs you with his imaginary stick through verbal taunts and interactions. And he wants you to interact with him back. Just don't, don't poke him harder than he poked you. And if you actually don't, then that kind of makes, makes people, you know, feel uncomfortable. So you got to be able to, you know, so I was kind of used to that, you know, with the pilots and the air crew and the Marines. The first time he saw me, he started, you know, calling me Leno. And I have (laughs) no idea why he calls me Leno. You know, if, if once he got to like you, he would, um, he would try to, you know, he would, he would give you a nickname and then, uh, for the rest of the, and some of them were imaginative and some of them weren't. He was pretty proud. And later he was on the, the Jay Leno show, um, like a year after he was president and came up and they did a whole segment about Leno at the White House. So that was kind of um, interesting. So you got a, you got a shout out essentially. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, so President Bush was very personable and, you know, he, he would, um, he would be up by 6 a.m., 
he'd be over in the Oval Office, you know, by 6.30, 6.45, and just very, you know, dedicated to getting the, um, the workday done. If it's, you know, 5 p.m., he may be back over at the residence, you know, so he's logged his 11-hour workday and, you know, spend the evening um, with his wife. You know, they were empty nesters because that's when uh, uh, Barbara and Jenna had just gone off to um, uh, Yale and UT. So they, so that was just, um, that was very interesting. When uh, eight years later, when uh, President Obama came in, President Obama was, um, you know, younger. I think he was 47. Yeah, yep. so he was 47, uh, the first lady. Uh, she was 44. You know, she, that's, that's still young, vibrant. And they had two school age kids, you know, 11 and eight at the time. And it was just a dip. It's a different household. It's a, you know, school age kid um, household. So, you know, he would get up, he would, you know, work out every day with the uh, personal trainer. Um, it was a treat if they could work out together with a, for an elder trainer. And then, um, you know, kind of eat a proper breakfast and get back over to the Oval Office maybe by 10 a.m., you know, hit, so then his staff has prepared stuff. And then, you know, he works through till uh, 6.37 p.m. You know, he, he had the designated time that if you're going to eat with the family, you got to be home and have that interaction. But then after that, that was kind of sacred time. But then he would always do his, um, his briefing books. I found that he was more the college professor where, you know, he's focused on the work that he's doing and may not say anything to me for a month. But then when it was something that we needed to talk about, then he would focus on it and ask appropriate questions, listen attentively. And if I gave him a, a briefing book for like a procedure that we're going to do the night before, it was apparent he had read, he had prepared and read all of that. So it's kind of just different approaches where, you know, all three working hard, doing the best that they can. You know, there's always mistakes that, that humans make from a medical standpoint. You know, there's a saying, healthy people don't need doctors, um, ill people do. And all three of them, um, you know, for the most part were young and healthy and we provided them um, the guidance to, to um, you know, optimize their health, that they were fit for duty, you know, while they're on the job and also to keep them healthy for years to come. Dr. Coleman, when you were Obama's physician, like I guess the top medical, yep. you were his doctor. How often were you in the White House during that time period when you were his physician? Yeah, so there's a small group of, um, uh, during my time was uh, active duty, two Army, two Navy, two Air Force, and their set of orders as physician says, White House physician. President Clinton, he picked Connie Mariano. He picked Dr. Mariano to be the physician to the president. She was at uh, Navy. President Bush picked uh, Richard Tubb. So Dr. Tubb, uh, Air Force, uh, was the physician to the president for, um, for President uh, Bush. And then President Obama, when he came in, um, there were six of us military. He also could bring a civilian in, um, but he chose to designate me as physician to the president. Do you know why he picked you? Well, I would say that at the time I was the most experienced. And I think that when I interacted with him, I think he liked how I interacted with him. And probably truthfully, you know, he said, you know, I don't really need a doctor, but Michelle and the, the girls probably do. And all those that travel with me. So I think that's, 
I think that's why uh, he went with me. Also, when you're campaigning, there's thousands of doctors you know, and he actually has very close friends that are physicians, especially from his Boston time when they were in law school and, and uh, you know, medical school and also his Chicago days. But sometimes you don't want your best friend to be your doctor. Yeah, I get that. You want, you want somebody that, you know, it comes down to, you know, healthcare is information and relationships. And do I trust what they're saying? And so he knew with me, no policy, no politics, just trusted medical advice. So our job is actually, you know, those, those friends of his got to be friends. They didn't get, they didn't have to like be working doctors. And mm -hmm. so I would actually take care of them and their family. And then I would also make sure that if I was providing information to the first lady or the president, you know, I would just, I would make sure that, you know, I, I did my, my homework to make sure they, you know, they would double down and say the information I'm telling them is uh, the latest and greatest. So as physician to the president, the office is actually on the ground floor of the resident, the, the, the White House. By the front entrance? No, it's the, if you come in the east wing, the east wing's on the... Uh, I, I was going to say, I was going to, I wanted to ask you some White House questions because yeah, you, I'm very, I've always been very fascinated with the operation of the White House. I've been to the White House. I've yeah. only, ever, I've only ever had an east wing tour. Yep. So I know exactly what you're talking about. So, so you, so you did or didn't go to the White House every day? As physician to the president or a White House physician, Monday through Friday, you're at the White House every day. Okay. And what, what's the, what's, how do you get into the White House each day? So you have a badge and the, you have a badge that says that you can, that you can go to the residence. And, and so, when they, sorry, because from my own brain, I got to ask you these questions. Yeah. So when they say you can go to the residence, do they just mean the actual residence where they sleep and eat? Or is that the main building, not including the East and West wing? Oh, the good. So that's the executive mansion. So oh, okay. Yeah, okay. so you have the 18, the 18 acres and then the executive mansion and then there's the east wing, the west wing. Across West Executive Drive is the old executive office building yep. now called the Eisenhower Executive yep. Office yep. Building. That is all part of the White House complex. And you actually have the new executive office building. You have the annex, which is 1800G. Those are also filled with White House staff. You know, every day, well... There's at least 7,000 people that have a badge for the White House. About a third are military support, about a third are secret service, and about a third are White House staffers. And so there's a small, a small group that actually works in the residence. And it's kind of, it's not who you would think, but then when you say, oh yeah. So if you're the, the, the valet, the butler, the cook, the pastry chef, the plumber, the electrician, and oh yeah, the physician and the nurse. So on the ground floor of the residence by the map room and by the, you know, the diplomatic reception room is where the doctor's office has been for, you know, for a hundred years. Cause the, there wasn't even a, you know, there wasn't even a white house physician until 1900 when it became kind of a full-time position. Uh, before that, they just covered it with um, you know senior senior military physicians, so that's so you where, were yeah. so you were you were in the White House Monday through yep. Friday at yep. minimum on in the residence the main floor. But you, if I if I let's see if I guess this right, yeah. you unlike most people had access, I would assume, to the executive mansion. 
Yeah, yeah, that's where your office is. And you know, before um, COVID, a million resident, a, a million guests went through it every year. So what, what I mean, what I mean by the executive mansion is, is yeah. that plenty of yeah. people, plenty of people have passes in and out of the White House. They can yeah. walk from the West Wing to the East Wing to the main building, I guess, which is the residence to the the Blue Room in this room. But yeah. very few people, other than the president's family and close friends and close aides, can actually go to the floor or floors in which they sleep and eat and do that stuff. You would have been one of those people that got access to that part of the White House, I would assume? Well, I would say yes, but at the same time, we know when to use it and when not to use it. So, you know, there's appropriate use of that privilege and there's inappropriate use. And there's also other areas on the White House complex that the, the doctors and nurses have um, access to and that has more to do with, you know, there's different contingency missions. And that's why you have the, you know, the classified um, security clearance, because you, you, we would provide, um, you know, care for the president, basically, um, you know, continuity of the president, continuity of operations of the government. So you've got to have a physician to um, assess and continue the care. Yeah, I mean, I just figured that not anybody, no matter how close you are to the president, yeah. The, the stairs on that main floor, not anybody can just walk up them and go into the executive mansion. There's definitely people watching that. But I would have guessed that his the president's main physician yeah. would have access, more access than 95% of people to. Yeah, well, there, yeah, there is a physician and nurse that are always on duty and always within a couple minutes. And you, yes, you have unfettered access. Sometimes it's called the president's shadow. You know, that access is is 100 percent based on you doing your job. Yeah. Which the appropriate medical response. It's not based on personal chit chat. Oh, no, no. I, I figured I figured that it may have come more routine, but I, I wonder if the awe of ever working in the White House ever wore off for you. I think when you're in it, you know, I would have 10 things that I had to get done that day or the world would fall apart. And often I wouldn't get to any of them because more pressing matters came up. So I think during 2012, when President Obama was campaigning for re-election, he did 200 trips. I did 120 of them. It's, it's challenging. You're part of a team that's working hard. Most of the things around you that are like, if you could stop and appreciate it, are actually there for him to do his job better, more efficiently for you to do your job and so sometimes you don't appreciate kind of the the awe and wonder, but it certainly is. Um, it's not gaudy, it's not fancy, but it's it's very um, it's very appropriate for what the purpose is. And that's um, um, you know he he um, he lives and works and entertains in the same space, and just the staff that work there, extremely dedicated, and kind of the unsung heroes who can. Uh, do all of those on a day. Every yeah, I mean, I would, I would love to get a West Wing tour and an executive mansion tour one day, yeah. just because it'd be cool to see. I know when I was outside the White House on the grounds, coming out of the main door from the East Wing tour, I remember one of the guards, he had, he had a machine gun in his hand, I think. Yeah. Um, he had said something like, you don't realize how many floors are in that main building. Yep. You know, it's not two floors. There's a, he said that he said there's more like six um 
yeah. I think it said it was just very it's very interesting I, I find it a very interesting structure and yep you know I think it's cool that you know only certain number of people get to see certain parts of that that building essentially yeah. so yeah I think I think it's very unique yeah there's a couple um basement floors um we have one basement that when you walk down the stairs is a full dental operatory so that's kind of cool you know yep. you and I have to waste a half a day go to the dentist Sure. So actually, um, if, if you're the president or if you're in the first family, uh, the dentist, the orthodontist uh, come to you. And uh, that's part of uh, the glamorous things that I arrange. And it's to um, kind of give them that whole person care. You, you know, if you go back to the 1960s, there's uh, what's called the Marilyn Monroe Tunnel. So I don't think that's anything classified. So that connects to some of the other buildings underground. I think the, that one goes to the uh, uh, Department of Treasury, so that's in the basement. There's also the ground floor, the first floor, the second floor, and the third floor. And um, you know, there's plenty of books that kind of describe all of that. Got it. Well, you've been kind enough to give me an hour. I really appreciate it, Dr. Coleman. I wish I was. I, I, I'm not going to be at this event. The other Millennium founder, Rob, is going to be there. Oh. Rob Davis. I know he's looking forward to meeting you. And if we met, I will. Uh, so maybe let me do maybe let me do a plug for what I'm going to talk about. So I'm going to go talk ahead. about. Go ahead. I'm going to talk about. I think it's 45 minutes. Um, yes. There's no CME, but more importantly, it's going to be educational, informational, educational. I'm going to talk about American Killer, and if you say what's that, you got to come up. You hear about the number one killer um, in the United States, and more importantly. Um, how we can transform healthcare to save thousands of lives and millions of dollars. Sounds like a good topic to me. Well, I'm sure it's going to be great. You probably won't be asked much or anything about the White House. So hopefully I got all those questions out of the way. But I, I really, I really appreciate it, uh, Dr. Coleman. Thank, thanks again for being here again, who will be down in Austin, Texas with us. Currently the Senior Vice President and Chief Quality and Safety Officer for Advent Health. Great life story. So much incredible work he's done, and we're very lucky to have him open the event for us. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Dr. Coleman. We look forward to seeing you soon.